All right, so this is the point that I normally just launch right into a sermon, but I just want to acknowledge what's happening here today, that this is a community of faith that's all in one room together uh, and just worshiping Jesus, and I'm thankful you are here. Uh, it is a really, you got some people, <laughs> Haley, thanks for starting that, Haley. <laughs> Haley, the worship leader, leading the clap, that's a... <laughs> um, it really is exciting. In fact, we've had such a fun morning, as Chelsea said, and there's been a little just windows of community. And uh, as I was coming in to sit in the front to jump in on singing, um, one of our deacons said, should I bring in more chairs? And I thought, well, I think maybe some people can squeeze in and we might have enough. And the question has been, if we go to one service, will we have room? Um, like for example, we even got five guys in Africa right now serving on a mission trip and uh, they were having church under a tree <laughs> this morning. Uh, somebody showed me a video of it, it was great. Uh, but will there be room for people? And can this room contain our church? And I think the kingdom of God answer to that is no. This room will never contain the work of God. It, it's not meant to and church isn't designed to contain the work of God. We're supposed to break out of these walls and take the message of Jesus to our community, to our world. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the future is going to hold for, like, number of services or times, whatever. I'm just thankful you're here in this moment uh, to go through this season uh, with our church as a family together. Um, I want to just, like, give you kiddos a, uh, and some adult kiddos also, the ones who never really grew up, just a little teaser here. We just kind of planned a little, like, we didn't really make a big deal out of it, but we wanted to just give you a gift and have, like, another little moment for fellowship today to just really anchor this day for community and fellowship. And so right after uh, our service today, uh, the Kona Ice snow cone truck is going to be out on the back parking lot. And uh, so you kiddos who are, like, taking notes uh, and uh, drawing pictures and all these kind of things, uh, just hang in there with us, okay? Uh, I hope you have a Bible. Open it to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. And as you turn there, I just want to remind you something that I learned from Chelsea, our children's minister, uh, that as we look at God's Word today, as we study the Scripture, you're going to hear some more noises and uh, people maybe moving around and squirming. And I just want you guys to know what I learned from her. Children are not a distraction from what God is doing. They are what God is doing. And uh, so they are welcome in this place. Thank you for leading us in that way, Chelsea. Uh, have you ever been a parent who, or seen a parent who had to break up a scuffle between kids? This is an interesting position to be in, right? Here's what usually happens is one kid does something that bothers another kid and, uh, and usually it's siblings and they, they kind of get in a little scuffle and things get heated and they don't have the skills quite yet to kind of calm themselves down. Frankly, if we were honest, most adults don't either. Uh, but the parent steps in and is like, hey, 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 what's going on here? What's going on here? And they sort of figure out what's going on. You know what usually happens is you go, well, so-and-so, you need to apologize to so-and-so, right? Brother, you need to apologize to sister. Sister, you need to apologize to brother, whatever it looks like. And have you seen that apology? Have you ever witnessed that? You know how it goes, right? Oh, sorry. <laughs> is that pretty accurate? I practiced that this morning. It's been a while since I did it myself. But that's usually how it goes. Now, that started with somebody doing something that the Bible would call unrighteous, something not right. That's how the situation started. And then the parent comes in and tries to mend things and fix things. And the kid then does what the Bible, in this case, in the Sermon on the Mount, might call something like show righteousness. It's not true righteousness, right? 
Like we know that they really don't mean it. In fact, the parent usually is going to say something like, okay, now try it again like you mean it, <laughs> right? That's how it usually goes. And so you've got these two problems when it comes to relating to God. We've got our tendency and the inevitability of unrighteousness. Like we're going to break the rules. We're going to have conflict. We're going to mess up. And then you've got the tendency towards what Jesus is talking about today, show righteousness, that we might try to do the right thing but from the wrong motive. And as we've seen in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 so far, the motions of righteousness don't matter at all compared to the motive of righteousness. What Jesus wants to do is give us a righteousness from outside of us that only he can provide, a perfect righteousness to give it from the outside in to then change us from the inside out. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Jesus is teaching us there, a life of harmony and peace and joy and fulfillment. It is possible, but it can never be achieved if we continue doing the wrong thing or if we continue trying to do the right thing in the wrong way. Jesus is calling us from a life of no righteousness and show righteousness to a life of true righteousness, one that comes from the outside in and changes us from the inside out. Now, let's go back to our situation with our parents and our kids to see where we're gonna go in our sermon today. Uh, now that we kind of understand what we, where we've come from in the scripture, think about that situation. Oh, sorry, you know, okay, now say it like you mean it. You know what usually happens is when a parent says, you need to apologize, what does a kid say? But he did it first. Or, but it's not fair. There's always an objection. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, as we keep pushing forward, what Jesus is doing, having just taught us three ways that people do is show righteousness and how to replace that with true righteousness, Jesus is going to preempt some of the objections that people might have. He's gonna try to get ahead of the curve a little bit and say, okay, I know I just taught you on what true righteousness looks like in giving to the poor and in prayer and fasting. Some of you are gonna go, yeah, but I don't know. I, I mean, give to the poor, I mean, that's, that's my stuff, right? Doesn't that sound kinda like a kid? But it's mine. And then there's going to be other people who are going to say things like, well, sacrifice my things and give up my meals? Like, well, that's not, that doesn't seem fair. I, I'm not going to have as much as the other people if I live that way. So then Jesus teaches us what this really looks like. His answer to these objections further drive home the main point of this entire sermon, which is covering three chapters, that there's only one way to the truly good life. In fact, put this on the screen, this is what we've been saying every week. We were created for a good life under the rule and the reign of a good God as partners in his kingdom. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. The entire Sermon on the Mount is about this one thing. Then there's only one way to experience this truly good life, to be fully surrendered without objection to living a life of true righteousness, received from Jesus, not achieved on our own. So the question that we have to answer as Jesus teaches us this is not do we believe God does rule and reign over the whole world? 
The question that we have to answer is, are we willing to let God rule and reign over our own hearts? This is what Jesus is getting at. We tend to object when Jesus calls us to all-in faith. We tend to hold on to things for ourselves. But Jesus is going to show us how it's really better that we fully surrender. And that's where the truly good life is. In fact, he shows us three ways. Three ways in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 34, that we can fully surrender to God and live the good life, the truly, truly good life. The first goes right back to what he just taught about giving to the poor. It's that we ought to give God our wealth. This is Jesus' way of heading the objection off at the pass. Give God, give to the poor, God says, and then people go, give, give my money to the poor? You mean the money I worked for? You mean the money that I earned? You want me to give that? Well, what about me? Well, Jesus says, give God your wealth. Look with me in verse 19 through 24, and I'll read this, and then we'll kind of unpack it. Matthew 6, 19, Jesus is recording, recorded as saying, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I don't know what that looks like in your Bible, but in my Bible, each of those three sections that sound like they're kind of random thoughts are separated into different paragraphs. But I want to show you how this is one continuous thought from Jesus teaching the same thing, heading off the objection at the pass where we stomp our feet and go, but it's mine, okay? The theme of verses 19 through 21, the first section, is treasure, which points back to Jesus' teaching on sacrificial generosity just a few verses before at the beginning of chapter 6. He's talking about giving to the poor. And so the theme is kind of treasure, but there's also a really strong link uh, to the refrain that's repeated four times in the first 18 verses of chapter 6. And so even as you're looking at your Bible, you can kind of flip back and look for this theme from verses 1 through 18. It's the refrain that true righteousness will be rewarded by God. You see the strong link there? Rewarded by God. That God always says in relation to true righteousness, there will be a reward. Your father who sees you in secret will reward you. And now he's talking about the treasure that we store up in heaven, okay? So there's a really strong link there. Jesus is continuing this conversation. And he knows the objection to his teaching is, is that we simply don't want to loosen our grip on what we have. Like we earned it, right? This is ours. But his reminder is life is short. Eternity is long. 
So which is more important to you? The here and now or the eternal? In fact, go back to Jesus' middle example, the example of prayer and what true righteousness looks like. And as we talked about when we studied the Lord's Prayer, that that's the central section of the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's right in the middle, like a mountain peak. And the very tip top of that mountain peak is right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. It's this key phrase that helps us understand the whole sermon where Jesus says that we ought to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we ought to live lives on earth as it is in heaven. This is kind of what he's talking about. So he's pointing us to eternal life and saying that it's possible to live in the here and now as it is in heaven, as partners in the kingdom of God. So if we go back to that phrase and we see Jesus' teaching in context, what we're seeing is the point he's making is this. Stop living for your next thousand dollars and start living for your next thousand years. I mean, think about how that changes your perspective. Like I know rents do, and like things are piling up, and the credit card bill's coming in, but what's more important? And yes, do those things. Yes, the Bible teaches us that wealth isn't bad, and And we ought to work hard. I mean, all these things are realities in the Bible, but we're talking not about how we necessarily live or work with our hands. Jesus is pointing us inner and deeper into our hearts to go, where is our motive coming from? How am I living? And am I living just so that I can get more and have a, a better grip on my own life? Or am I willing to remember that this life is but a vapor? Here one moment and gone the next. And that there's a bigger picture a kingdom that lasts forever, that God has invited us to participate in as partners for eternity. So stop living for the next thousand dollars. Whatever you're gonna do with it, is it gonna matter in eternity? Start living for the next thousand years. Like I said, God's not against us building wealth. He's not against us having wealth. Jesus just wants us to know what really matters is what's in our heart. This is what verse 21 says. Look at chapter six, verse 21 again. It says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. True righteousness is a heart issue. We often think it's so much more about what we do, but wow, it's so much more, Jesus says, about who we are and how we see our relationship with God. And so Jesus gives two illustrations to drive this home. True righteousness is a hard issue. Here's two illustrations. This is how this whole section is connected. Verse 22 is the first illustration. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. <clears throat> you can have a healthy eye or a bad eye. What's Jesus doing here? Is he suddenly an optometrist? I mean, he knows a lot about the eye. He created the eye, right? But what's he really trying to say? The eye in this case, around this time period, would have been understood metaphorically. Uh, The eye was not just how you see the outside world, but how the way you live actually reveals what's true about you on the inside. So it's a metaphor that the, the eye is like a window that stands between the inside and the outside of a person. What's true about you inwardly, is it also true about you outwardly? What's true about you outwardly? Is it also true about you inwardly? 
And so the eye becomes a metaphor for that. Then there's the word healthy. Uh, that word healthy, you know, we automatically think, is it good? You know, and if you think about a window, you'd want to know, is it clean? Is it transparent? Can you see through it? But that word could also be translated, interestingly, single-minded. Think about that. The eye is the lamp of the body. Is your eye, is the window into your soul, is what, how you live saying about your heart, single-minded? Is it whole or undivided. In other words, what you focus on is what truly fills you. Your life moves in the direction that you look. This is true, right? Kids, have you learned how to ride a bike? I hope you have. Yeah, we got some bike riders in the room. You know, uh, so I got to teach my son how to ride a bike, and hopefully pretty soon we'll teach my daughter how to ride a bike. But I love cycling. It's true also in driving. Uh, but when you're learning to ride a bike, the way that you can get balance to get off those training wheels isn't to focus on your pedaling or your handlebar or, you know, where you're sitting. or all this. That's not where you should focus. If you focus on where you are, you'll always be wobbly, right? But what happens if you look up and you pick something out in the distance and you focus on it. You know what happens? You don't even have to turn the handlebars. Your bike goes to that point. I mean, it's really a cool phenomenon. You should try it sometime. You can try this when you're driving too, for those of you who are better at driving than riding bicycles. If you just try to stay between the lanes, the dotted line and the solid line, and you're constantly looking at what's right in front of your hood, you're going to be back and forth and probably even having a hard time not running into somebody else. But if you're cruising along and you just pick that one spot right out there in the asphalt 100 meters or 200 meters or a quarter mile away and you just focus on that spot, you can just relax. You're going to go there. And this is what's true. Jesus says this, that what you look at determines what your life is about. The course of your life moves in the direction of your gaze. But here's what's really interesting. The root word for healthy, uh, when it, Jesus talks about your eye can be healthy, in other forms of that word can also mean without riches or generous. So Jesus is still talking about money. It seems to be that Jesus is using a play on words to help people see that the way that they use their money, the way they think about their wealth, says something about what's really on the inside. The way they approach work, the what they do with their paycheck, what they do to get a paycheck, all these things speak to what's really on the inside. So Jesus is doing a deeper dive into what he's already taught. Remember, he's heading off the objections at the past. He's showing us kind of another angle about especially giving to the poor, a life of generosity, sacrificial generosity. How you see money is a window into your soul. So in this deep dive on what he's already taught, Jesus is calling us to be single-minded, not double-minded, like the hypocrites. Go back into the beginning of chapter six, the three examples, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting, the refrains that are repeated each time are also, look at the hypocrites who do this show righteousness 
And remember how every time we saw that what they do public in view of people, their reward is it. That's just the applause of men is all they get. They're getting nothing else from God. Even though their lives look righteous, they aren't truly righteous. So here Jesus is continuing to double down on that idea. Be single-minded when it comes to life with God in relationship to your wealth. What would your life look like in a thousand years based on what you do with your money now? It's an important question. And it now sets up the second illustration perfectly in verse 24 where Jesus says no one can serve two masters. Because that's what double-mindedness is, right? It's an allegiance to two masters. You're constantly back and forth between one and the other. And they are in opposition to one another. They're not helping each other. And the masters in this situation are God and money. Money might be in your Bible, depending on the translation you have, translated mammon. If that's you and you have that, in your, and don't be confused by this, that's the actual word that Jesus used. He used the word mammon. That's literally what came out of his mouth. So what that means is, what gives you confidence? And some people would even go as far as to say mammon represents the God of this world. You know, like other, the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians, we talk about the, the powers of this world that are at work. Well, mammon was a way that we refer to that because people have confidence in a lot of worldly things, right? How much money I have? How big is my house? How good is my car? You know, uh, now that I have a relationship with somebody, I can have confidence in that. All these things represent what Jesus would call mammon. So it is about all these other things, but it's also, he's specifically about money. Is, is your confidence placed in money or is your confidence placed in God? This is the question. So as we're starting to see, this is more than just random advice about money, right? Jesus is talking about who rules and reigns over your life. If you resist generosity, could it be that something other than God is in charge of your life? It's a question that you gotta ask and you gotta deal with. Are you serving Almighty God or the Almighty Dollar? This is where we are. It's so funny how 2,000 years later we still have the same issues, right? But here's the good news Jesus isn't coming down on you. And this is how most people would respond to this. They would go, Oh, I feel so guilty because I didn't give to this, or I could have given more and I didn't. I just feel so guilty. Listen, Jesus isn't coming down on you, Jesus is showing you a better way. That's what this sermon is about. The Sermon on the Mount is all about you were created for a good life, a fulfilled life. And the best way, the only way to fully experience the truly blessed life is to come under the rule and reign of God fully as partners in his kingdom. This is a reality. So our world longs for wealth in a way that only ends exactly how Jesus describes here in verses 24 and 25. 
think about what you see on the news. Think about what you see in the people's lives around. Think about what you've seen in your own life. When your life is focused on wealth or money and getting what you can get, what happens? It ends in destruction. It ends in darkness. It ends in drudgery where you cannot escape the rat race to get the next dollar without your whole life falling apart. But Jesus is saying that's not the way he created you to live. You were created for a better life than that. And it's funny on the news, like it doesn't even matter what the news is. Politics, um, it could be like talking about healthcare, it could be talking about college football. It doesn't matter, like you can just see, anybody can look at the world and how it operates and know that it's, everything's driven by money, right? And the news media itself is driven by money, okay? And where is that leading? Can you see the destruction? Can you see the darkness? Can you see the drudgery where just the same old thing over and over again and it's never good? Do you see it? Jesus says there's a better way, a better way to live, a way which leads to heaven, a way which leads to light, a way which leads to God himself. Generosity is an act of trust in God which leads to the truly good life. This is what Jesus is talking about. Now let's keep reading. And let's take note that Jesus isn't gonna switch topics, but it's a continuous flow. If generosity leads to the good life, what does the opposite do? What does greed do? Well, against the wisdom of our world, Jesus is saying that a pursuit of money will not lead you to security. Well, that's not what everybody thinks, right? If I just have more, then my life will finally be okay. But it never ends that way, does it? In fact, Jesus is saying the pursuit of money doesn't lead to security. It actually is a cause of anxiety. Did you know that 30% of adults in America are diagnosed with some sort of anxiety disorder? And of adults up to the age 25, 50%. What if the pursuit of money isn't the best trajectory for our world? What if we were created for something better? This is what Jesus seems to be telling us. And how we deal with our own money or our own things, it matters. So he teaches in these next several verses that not only do we give God our wealth, we give God our worry. Give God our worry. Look with me in chapter six, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, just pause there, therefore. Great Bible teacher always says, what's the therefore, therefore, right? Okay, so <laughs> we know he's continuing this thought. It's not a separate idea. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or about your body or what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to your life by worrying? 
And why do you worry about clothes? Observe the wildflowers of the field and how they grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. I just put a parenthesis here. You know Solomon was the most wealthy man to ever live. It's interesting that Jesus brings him up when we're talking about how we see our wealth. Even Solomon in all his splendor was not, was adorned like one of these, right? If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You have little faith. So don't worry, saying what will we eat, what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Now just fast forward, we're gonna cover 33 in a minute, but I want you to see how this closes, this section in verse 34. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What will we eat? What will we wear? You remember the kid? It's not fair. If I live sacrificially, if I live generously, I'm not going to have as much as these other people. Who's going to look after me? Jesus says, you can give God your worry. These potential objections are objections to the teaching on generosity and fasting. It's a continuation of the same thought. And so at first, it seems quite exaggerated to me. (laughs) You know, like the person who, the proverbial person who gives someone the shirt off his back, they don't go shirtless the rest of their life, do they? No, they're gonna end up with another shirt. I mean, certainly, right? The person who chooses to fast from a meal for the purpose of prayer, for spiritual formation, they're they're not gonna go the rest of their life starving. No, certainly they're going to have another meal, but this is one of those things where we take something small and we make it big and we go, but God, I know you want me to do this, but what about, but God, I know you want me to do this, but I don't think that's fair. God, I'm making the same salary as them and you want me to give how much away? How am I supposed to live? Jesus says, don't worry. God is looking after you. God will provide for you. I mean, yeah, these objections are exaggerated, but that's exactly how worry and anxiety show up in our lives, right? Something small all of a sudden appears really, really big. Or maybe you've heard the phrase, like a molehill can look like a mountain. This is what worry does. It blows things out of proportion. But Jesus isn't condemning people who struggle with anxiety. If I could just acknowledge this real quick, because I know that in this room there are people who have talked to their doctor in the last couple of months about anxiety and depression. There are people who worry, who wonder if they should talk to a doctor about it. <laughs> Can I just tell you that Jesus sees you? He's not condemning you. This is his way of seeing you and acknowledging that he understands that this is the trajectory that the world takes us. The, the life that we were created for is something different and better, but if we live in the trajectory of our world, it will always lead to this place. And we see that happening right in front of our eyes. But Jesus acknowledges that while anxiety is real and it's common, he's pointing us back and up to an even greater reality that God didn't intend for our life to be this way. 
there's a better way. Which is exactly how verse 25 summarizes this whole section. There is more to life. There's more to life. There's a bigger picture. And then to prove his point, he repeats a pattern, pointing us to things that we typically would take for granted, okay? So first, he gives us the positive example in verse 26 at the beginning that, look at the birds, the birds of the sky. Do they have any control over their own lives? I mean, not much. Everything they have is because God gave them. Even the sense to know where the worm is, right? Even the worm that's there, everything is by the grace of God that they exist. So that's the positive example. And then he turns it around and he says, but here's the truth. Look at the second half of verse 26. He says, you are much more valuable to God. Some of you are like, duh, <laughs> it's birds, right? We take it for granted. You are much more valuable to God. And then there's a reproof, or what I'd call like a reality check. In verse 27, he says, who of you can add a single moment to your life by worrying? So there's this positive example. Look at the birds of the sky. There's the truth. You're worth so much more than that. And then he goes, hey, by the way, reality check. When you do worry, it's not helping you. And then he does it again. He says, look at the flowers of the fields. He gives us this positive example. What have they done for themselves? What do they do to sustain their lives? What do they do to generate glory for themselves? Nothing. Even along those same lines, look at Solomon who had everything. I mean, literally, you talk about, someone says this morning, did you hear about the person who won the lottery, one point so not such odd billion dollars or whatever it was? I don't know. And my response was, Solomon had more. <laughs> well, I mean, read Ecclesiastes. God gave him more, and he still didn't have life figured out, right? So, you know, look at Solomon, all the glory that he had, even the temple, which the Bible describes as, as one of those glorious temples to ever exist on the face of the earth. Even that, what did he do? Jesus says nothing. It was all God. It was all by the grace of God. So then there's the truth. You are much more valuable to God, followed by a reality check. When you anxiously take the matters of life into your own hands, you're identifying yourself with people who do not have a relationship with God. That's what he means by the Gentiles. You know, earlier in the sermon, we recognized that Gentiles, earlier in Jesus' sermon, I should say, the Gentiles are essentially pagan. They're people who don't know the one true God that the Israelites knew, that Jesus came to represent and who he was. And so Gentiles were people outside of that community, that God, by God his grace, welcomed them in by faith. And so this is good, good news because most of us in the room are probably Gentiles, right? So thank goodness for his grace. He invites us in. But in this moment, he's saying, if you anxiously take the matters of life into your own hands, you are defining yourself in the same way that people without God are defined. That's a defining characteristic. But those who know God, trust God, that he knows what you need and will provide. This is what he's saying. <coughs> Excuse me. So generosity and sacrifice. From giving to the poor, prayer, fasting, now Jesus heads off these objections at the pass. They are a foolishness to the world. Right? Who gives more than they have to? 
Who, who is generous? I mean, this is like, no, the world says take and keep. Build your own storehouse, not give to something else. It's foolishness to the world, but this kind of complete trust in God is where true freedom is found. That's what Jesus is saying. So Jesus, by the way, isn't just giving some niceties or general platitudes here. These are more than words to Jesus. This is the Sermon on the Mount. If you missed the first you know, uh, you know, sermon in here, we talked about how the Sermon on the Mount came to be in the beginning of Matthew chapter five and where they are, probably on a hillside just outside of the city. Right after a bunch of miracles were done, Jesus performing some miracles at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus walks up the hillside. His disciples follow close behind, but then even beyond his disciples, there's a crowd of people who are interested in Jesus who wanna see what he has to do and hear what he has to say. And so they all come up around Jesus and he begins to teach. And I wonder as Jesus is teaching about worry and wealth, specifically about how much more valuable people are to God than the birds or the flowers. I wonder if he in his mind is looking forward to what he will accomplish on behalf of humanity. Because these are more than just words to Jesus. This literally was going to require his life. To be saying you are more valuable than a bird or a flower is Jesus saying I am willing to give up my life for you. This is the good news. This is the, what the whole Bible points to, that you are so valuable to God that he would give himself up to death so that he might rescue you from the punishment of sin and into eternal life with him by his grace alone through our faith. This is the good, good news. Jesus is recorded in John chapter 10, verse 10, as saying this, a thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Remember verses 19 through 21, Matthew chapter six? Does that sound familiar? The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Remember, there's a better life. We were created for something good, and Jesus is pointing us to it. Which leads us to our final point, verse 33. This is what one commentator called the thermal hotbed of the Sermon on the Mount. So I love that, like if you were gonna look at a thermal representation, like if you're looking for a heat signature, uh, to know where true life is found. Like I'm thinking about Navy SEALs who are using like night vision goggles and all this technology and they're looking for a certain person and they're you know, having to go through forests and jungles and they're, what are they looking? They're looking for heat signatures. Where's life? This commentator said verse 33 is the heat signature, right? Of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Here's what it says. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. All these things will be provided for you. Jesus is saying, give God your worship. Give God your wealth, yeah, give God your worry, but all this culminates in this one big idea, give God your worship. 
that everything about you goes to point to what's true about him. Seek first. What does it mean to seek? This is a verb that keeps on going. So it's an action verb that keeps on going. Uh, and that means that it's, it's like an unending quest that our entire lives, we don't just find it. We don't find God's kingdom and then go, got that. Okay, I'm gonna go back to my normal life. Seek first is a verb that keeps on going from the moment you are met or introduced to Jesus to the end of your days where you see him face to face and begin eternity with him. It's a call to always be seeking. Seeking what? Seeking the kingdom of God first and his righteousness. What's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is everywhere that God rules and reigns. Everywhere God's in charge, right? Everywhere God is sovereign, everywhere he's in control, everywhere his way goes is the kingdom of God. And remember our question that we started with, right? It's not just about is God in charge everywhere? Is God ruling and reigning over all things? The question is, is God ruling and reigning over my heart? And Jesus says, seek first with your whole life. Make it your priority. Order everything in your life around this one thing, the kingdom of God, that he would rule and reign and his righteousness now, sometimes people will separate those two like they're different, like the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, and if you missed the last sermons coming up to this, then you need to go back and check them out because we've seen that the kingdom of God cannot be experienced without the righteousness of Jesus. And the righteousness of Jesus that's truly received from the outside in and changes us from the inside out, that is living in the kingdom of God. That's experiencing the kingdom of God. In fact, in Matthew 5, verse 10, in the Beatitudes, it says that those who are living righteously, it might cost them the ultimate sacrifice in this life through persecution, but those who are living righteous lives, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Present tense. So seek first the kingdom of God. Order your life so that God rules and reigns over all aspects of who you are. And his righteousness, you can't have the kingdom of God without receiving Jesus by faith. His righteousness replacing your unrighteousness so that then he can change you from the inside out. This is tough for us. I wanna end with a quote an example, and a promise. The quote's from A.W. Tozer. <laughs> he wrote a little book called uh, The Pursuit of God. It's a really, really great little book. Uh, A.W. Tozer says this, let the average man be put to the proof on the question of who is above and his true position will be exposed. What he means is, who rules and reigns in your life? He says, let him be forced into making a choice between God and money, between God and men, between God and personal ambition, between God and self, God and human love, and God will take second place every time. However the man may protest, the proof is in the choices he makes day after day throughout his life. This just goes to show what Jesus has been saying all along in the Sermon on the Mount, that motives matter more than your motions. In fact, with the right motive, you always lead to the right motions. And if it doesn't, then there may be something wrong on the inside. 
here's the example. King David, he wrote a psalm, Psalm 27. I love the way that Eugene Peterson's message version, uh, you know, translates this. <laughs> he says, when my heart whispered, seek God, my whole being replied, I'm seeking him. This is King David whose life was being threatened. And when everything outside of his relationship with God was challenging his life, he ran to God for refuge. He found that the only place where he could have true peace and the good life was with God, in God's presence. And he said, there was something in him that whispered, seek God. And his only response was from his whole being to say, I'm seeking him. So he's the example for us. You might be hearing the whisper of God today that maybe things aren't ordered in your life in the right way. Maybe there's more to this faith in Jesus. Maybe there's more transformation that needs to be happening. And I just wanna encourage you to follow the example of David. If you hear the whisper, seek God, may your whole being reply, I'll seek him. Here's the promise. The prophet Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 13 and 14, God says to his people, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. That's the Lord's declaration. That's the promise. You ever seen the Lion King? The Lion King, uh, Back in the 90s, it's been remade a couple times, but I think this scene ends up in every one of them, but it's where uh, the king has a son, Simba, who ultimately will take over the throne uh, of the, the African landscape and all the animal kingdom there, right? And then I'm not gonna tell you the whole story of the movie. I don't wanna spoil it if you haven't seen it, but there's this one great scene where he's standing on Pride Rock with Simba next to him, and he says, he says, look out, do you see everything the light touches? This is a beautiful landscape. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. And he tells Simba, one day it's gonna be yours. I just tell you, this is what Jesus is speaking to us in the Sermon on the Mount, that we can look and see everything the light touches. In our world, everything the darkness touches. It's all God's kingdom. And he's invited us as partners with him to bring his kingdom to bear on earth because that's ultimately what will happen. When Jesus returns, he is coming as a victor. He's coming as a winner. He's gonna punish and conquer all evil. And as Haley talked about earlier, he's going to redeem all things. He's gonna make everything new again and heaven is going to meet earth and the earth is gonna be remade and we're gonna be dwelling with God for eternity. And everything will be his kingdom. The question in the here and now is, is his kingdom here? Is the light touching you on the inside? That's where I think Jesus wants you to look today. Is he ruling and reigning over your heart? I wanna lead us in prayer. We're gonna have a song of response today and then we'll dismiss. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your light. God, thank you for the, just the vision of heaven and the good life that we can live here and now.
because of Jesus. God, stir our hearts today to be fully surrendered to your rule and reign so that we can experience the goodness and the fullness of your kingdom here and now. God, the words of David are inspiring to me that when we hear the whisper to seek you, that our whole being responds, I'm seeking you. May that be true of us today. The words of Jeremiah are peace to me today that when we seek you, we will find you. And my prayer is that today as people are seeking you, God, you will make yourself known. That you will call someone to faith in Jesus today, that their life would be changed from this point forward because they fully gave themselves to you in faith. Help us to respond to you, to give ourselves more to you today than we came ready to do. (laughs) Stretch us, shape us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.